All right. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, Lord. Pray that as we unpack the scriptures, as we look to the inspired word of the Holy Spirit, that we would take it seriously, that we would look at it afresh. I pray that we would uh, have soft hearts to your direction in ways that we have um, erred or in ways that we need correction, Lord. I pray that we would have soft hearts to receive your correction. I pray that you, yeah, that you just do a work and open the ears of those that need to hear what has to be said tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. All right, so we've been tackling this issue of spiritual warfare, wrestling with spiritual warfare. And... Um, felt like with Matt's talk last week, he started like 15 sermons. So it was like, okay, well, I guess we can just kind of like run through them. But um, one thing I kind of wanted to do today was to revisit a popular scripture that I think we all know and we all maybe even have memorized. But I wanted to look at it in a different light. So if you can and you have your scriptures, uh, turn to Ephesians 6. And we'll be looking at verse 10. I'm going to read it through and then we'll walk it through after. So. Ephesians 6.10 says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might, or some translations say power of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist on the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having, having belted your waist with truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having strapped your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, in addition to all taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. So growing up in church, this is a popular topic. I think even Life Kids talked about it the other day. <clears throat> but thinking in light of 
some of the things Pastor Matt said last week in light of some of my own meditations. I think I really wanted to to kind of take it out of the place of a popular story that we know and actually see, is there legitimate, practical applications to this? Because I think sometimes we would say, oh, the breastplate of righteousness or the shield of like, what exactly does it mean? How do we use this piece of technology? How do we use these pieces of armor practically, not just in a you just got to use it way? But what's the actual steps? What does it look like when it's used? What does it look like when it's not used? What actually happens? So. I wanted to remind you of a few things here. That this world has wicked, evil people, communities, and systems, but they are animated by spiritual malevolence. And it's sustained by human depravity. I'll say it one more time. The world has evil, wicked people, communities, and systems. But it is animated by spiritual malevolence or the kingdom of darkness. But it is sustained, continued by human depravity. So keeping this in mind, I want to actually evaluate the evil day, as the scripture says, of Eve. And the evil day, or one of the evil days, I should say, of Jesus. I want to see what it looks like if we were to unpack the armor of God in the context of the garden. And unpack the armor of God in the context of Jesus' temptation in the desert. What would it look like? Because I think in those two stories, we see a lot of what can happen in our personal lives. And we can see... The failures of one that is not dressed in this armor of God and one that is successful and is clearly dressed in the armor of God. Everybody tracking? So one thing I want to say here is the kingdom of darkness will attack at any time. I think sometimes we assume it's when you're in this dark place when the enemy attacks. The enemy hits you whenever he can hit you. So it doesn't matter. And I think this is great in the context of Eve and Jesus is that we see that Eve was in a garden with food all around her. Abundance, the realized presence of God and in a place of fruitfulness. But she was tempted by what she couldn't have in light of all she did have. Jesus was in a desert and had nothing to eat or drink. So he was in a place of lack, unrealized presence of God and in a place of loneliness. He was tempted by what he would eventually have in light of what he did not have. Everybody tracking? So, thinking of these two instances, we can see the enemy can attack at any time. You can be in the best time of your life, 
the enemy can attack. And if you think it's simply, well, he's going to hit you with a sickness. No, 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 no. That's usually not the temptation. The temptation is to get a little more than you actually need. It's actually to go past the boundary that you're allotted. Yes, sometimes the enemy also attacks you in the desert. When you're in a place of lack. When you're in a place of loneliness. But it's not just the temptation of things getting worse. But sometimes it can actually be the temptation of things getting better. It's getting it by carnal, maybe even malevolent means. To get what God has promised by your own hand. When God said that he will give it to you. So, thinking about all this, I'm going to walk through each of these elements of armor. And just break it down here and see how both Eve and Jesus fared in using these elements. So the first one um, I want to start with is the shield of faith. Now, at that time, ancient Romans had these shields that were quite big. Uh, Sometimes when we look at these ancient movies, we see these like small circular shields running around. You know, I, I'm a I'm a, like a person that loves time period movies, especially in ancient Rome. So I'm very familiar with that door looking shield. It can actually cover the whole body. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen uh, some of these movies that you would actually see them come together, put their shields beside each other and on top. It almost looks like an impe- impenetrable force. It's pretty interesting. I want to put you in the mind of Paul. You have to remember, Paul was imprisoned in Rome. He was attached to a Roman soldier. So you would have to think he was looking at a natural situation and making the spiritual connections. So when he saw these Roman soldiers walking with these huge shields, in his mind is like, yeah, That shield actually covers up every other piece of armor that you have on. It's actually the the first line of defense and the best line of defense. So that is the shield. Faith is simply informed trust. It's not blind trust. It's not just we'll see what happens. No, it's trust that is founded upon previous evidence. So we trust that God will do X, Y, and Z because he's shown himself to do X, Y, and Z. Do you understand? So if I can, if I've seen that God has delivered, if I've seen that God has provided, I can trust that he will do it in the future. So that would not be known as blind faith. That is actually informed trust. Everybody understand? So, understanding this, the shield of faith, as I said, protects against every dart of the enemy, but it also protects every other piece of equipment that you have on. So you have to understand here, the belt of truth and righteousness, the gospel of peace, salvation, all of these pieces of of equipment, they actually cannot be wielded well once that shield is lowered. 
You see, that shield is actually the whole thing. If you actually look at the Roman style of fighting, and again, I'm trying to take you there so you understand why this is so important. When that shield is dropped, a Roman soldier has actually dropped their best piece of defense. Now, I could rely on my breastplate. I could rely on my helmet if a sword is coming to it or an arrow is coming to it. But it's not my best piece of defense. Do you understand? The shield of faith is the best piece of defense. It's not our only, but the best. So when we have trust in God, when we have faith in God, we are protected and we will never lose anything that God has purposed us to have. We can look at Psalms 11, 1 to 7, that can help explain it a bit more. It says, in the Lord, I take refuge. How, How can you say to my soul, flee as a bird to your mountain? For behold, the wicked... Bend the bow, they have set their arrow in the string to shoot in darkness at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in the holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see, his eyelids test the son of mankind. The Lord tests the righteous and the wicked, and his soul hates one who loves violence. He will rain coals of fire upon the wicked and brimstone and burning wind will be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteousness. The upright will see his face. This scripture, as I said, informed trust. David here was writing He's a man of war, so he would actually very much understand this allegory that Paul is talking about. Even though we are under attack, even though we are feeling the arrows that are launched from this dark place by our enemies, there is a promise that even though this might be a level of testing, even though this or... As my grandmothers used to say, though the battle may be hot, we can trust that the Lord is righteous and he loves righteousness and the upright will, not might, not hopefully, but will see his face. So now... This informed trust. This is our best defense against the enemy. Whatever happens, we have trust that God will see us through. So what about even Jesus? How did how did they use this shield of faith? Well, you see, Eve did not trust that God knew best. See, she did not. Trust that there was something about the tree of knowledge of good and evil that God saw and she did not see. If you look at the story, she looked at the fruit 
and saw that it was good for food. She's, do, do you, if you saw, she saw, she saw, she saw. There was a difference that she actually saw the fruit the way the enemy described versus seeing it the way God described and told her to say, don't touch. So she did not trust God's vision. What about Jesus? You see, Jesus actually trusted that God knew best. He had faith that his father would give him physical contentment, comfort in protection, and elevation in status would come in time. Look at what he was tempted with. I think one of the coolest things is Jesus knew who he was. We knew that this plan between the father and the son was planned out before the foundations of the earth. That's what the scripture says. But he was shown all the kingdoms of the world. Think about that. Jesus was eventually going to be able to say what we read. All power in heaven and on earth has been given to me. But the enemy offered it earlier. Think about that. That was what Satan was offering was going to be Jesus's anyway. The only difference between that time and at his ascension was time. So let's think about it here quickly. The question is. What do you see differently than God? That's question number one. That has implications on how you use the shield of faith. Number two, what is the enemy offering you that God has promised you already that you will eventually have? I can't answer that question for you, but the Holy Spirit can reveal that to you. Second is the belt of truth. I'm going to speed up a bit. Roman soldiers wore their belt at all times. On duty and off duty. It also held the holster for their sword. So what is truth? Truth is what is true or what is in accordance with reality. So the implication is we have to have on truth at all times. And it will protect us from the lies of the enemy and the kingdom of darkness. And I think Something that we also have to remember is that if we do not have the belt of truth, we cannot wield the sword of the spirit. Again, Paul was observing these Roman soldiers on duty and off duty. They always had their belt and it was always holstered with their sword. Always. You can research it. There was never a time a Roman soldier did not have their belt and have their sword. Never. So in his mind, the belt of truth is something that no matter what you're doing, if you're in church, you're out of church, you're at work, you're changing your daughter, you're taking a dog on a walk, whatever you're doing, there's never a time that you will not have on this belt. So let's look at Eve and Jesus. 
What Eve forgot is the truth that eating the fruit would result in death. That was the truth. God told her, if you eat of this, you will surely die. Not maybe, not we'll see, high probability, you will die. In light of the enemy's temptation, she forgot that. She did not put on the belt of truth. You see, with Jesus, Jesus was the son of God already. But look at what the enemy asked him. If you are the son of God. If? He was the son of God already. He did not have to prove it. And Jesus knew the truth. He had the belt of truth. That's why he was able to wield the sword of the spirit so efficiently and so quickly. Questions for you now is. What about the truth of God are you denying? And the next question is, what is the enemy telling you about yourself that's already true, but trying to make you prove it? I don't know the answers, but the Holy Spirit will show you. Breastplate of righteousness. Breastplate, it protects the most vital organs in your body. And righteousness in this scripture is not actually talking about justification by grace through faith. But it's the sanctifying righteousness of Christ that is practiced in the believer's life. So, sanctified, righteous living guards the believer's heart against the assaults of the evil one. I have proof. Proverbs 13. Proverbs 13, 6. Righteousness guards the one whose way is blameless, but the wicked brings the sinner to ruin. Yes, Jesus is our righteousness, but there is also a sanctifying work of righteousness that we walk out as Christians. How do I know that? Read First John. He talks about it. If you say you love God, but don't love your neighbor, what does he call you? You're a liar. He even goes farther and says, you don't even have God in you. You're not only telling the truth. We actually know where you stand. So there is a sanctification that comes, or I should say a justification that comes by grace through faith in the finished work of Christ, but the sanctification, the daily work, the spiritual disciplines that we talk about, it actually forms us, and that's how the Spirit forms us into the image of the Son. So with Eve, living righteously for her was just to obey God's law. Don't eat 
of the fruit. Period. That's it. That was her breastplate of righteousness. Obedience. With Jesus, in Jesus' temptation of the desert, trust was the sanctifying, righteous thing to do. Jesus didn't want to do what was right in his own eyes, but did the righteous thing, obey and trust God. So here's the question. In what way are you doing what is right in your own eyes, but is wrong in the eyes of God? That's question number one. Question number two is, what is God asking you to do that may not be a law, but he's asking you to trust him? I don't know the answers, but the Holy Spirit will show you. Sandals of the gospel of peace. See, sandals gave soldiers sure footing in all kinds of surfaces. And the gospel of peace here that Paul is talking about is not actually sharing the gospel, but it's the assurance that the peace, sorry, the surety and the peace that the gospel gives to those who believe. So think about Eve for a second. She was in the garden. That means she knew about the tree of life. Everlasting and eternal life was in the garden. But she chose to go against what God had prescribed. She did not find peace in the revelation and command of God, but saw God's law as something holding her back from position, status, and somehow restricted her and restricted her peace with God and actually saw that law as something to be rebelled against. You see, with Jesus, Jesus was assured that if he trusted the Father's plan, he would be delivered. Think about it. Eve had everything. If you read the Genesis account, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was there, but eternal life was also there too. So she actually did not find peace. She could have responded, I don't need this. I have the tree of life. She could have responded that way, folks. But she didn't. Adam didn't. But with Jesus here, he actually trusted that eventually he will be delivered. That was Jesus's saving grace. My father will elevate me at the appropriate time. So here's the question. Does the gospel give you enough peace in all situations, giving you sure footing, no matter the situation that the enemy puts you in? I don't have the answers, but the Holy Spirit will show you. The helmet of salvation. I think we all are familiar with what a helmet does. 
It protects your noggin. If you don't have a helmet on and something hits your head, you're going to be in trouble. But what's interesting is with salvation, I think it's that it's one of those older words that maybe we've lost a true understanding of. Salvation is the deliverance and preservation from harm and ruin. So wearing the helmet of salvation is trusting in God's ability to preserve and deliver us from all dangers and harm. So with Eve, upon hearing the serpent, Eve could have just asked God for what she wanted. Think about it, folks. What Satan was saying, she could have talked to God about it. How do I know? They walked in the cool of the day together. Put two and two together, folks. She could have asked. But on some sort of level, she did not trust that the predicament that was going on in her head, that the serpent presented, I don't think God can actually save me from this predicament. I see a situation that I like. I'm hearing about a situation that I like. And I don't think God can deliver. So I'm going to take matters into my own hands. You see, what was opposite with Jesus in the desert, when hearing the enemy, in order for him to even retort in the way that he said, he had to trust God for his immediate and future deliverance. He had to have. If you have trust that God will save, he will preserve, then you can have a confidence that there's nothing that the enemy can actually do that, as the scripture says, separate us from the love of God. Going back to Eve, I have a personal thought that I believe in that situation. If she would have talked to God about it, I think God would have figured it out. Maybe even if she asked for something, maybe God would have given it. Here's where my thought comes from. If you go to 2 Samuel 12. Second Samuel 12, 7. It's after Nathan confronted David about Bathsheba. So after telling the story, this is what Nathan said. So, you, you know, he tells the, tells the story about a sheep. You can read it before. And then David gets mad. And he says, this person needs to be punished. So he says, Nathan said to David, you yourself are this man. This is what the Lord of God of Israel says. It is I who anointed you as king over Israel. And it is I who rescued you from the hand of Saul. I also gave you your master's house and put your master's wives into your care. And I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I would have added to you many more things like these. It presents the question. What are you trying to do by carnal works that you could just ask for? 
I don't know the question or the answers to that question for you. I know for myself. But I'm sure the Holy Spirit will show them to you. Lastly, the sword of the Spirit. I think this is everyone's favorite part. The sword is the first offensive weapon Paul talks about. But here, Roman soldiers at that time had a medium-sized double-edged sword. And we know, because Paul described it, the sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. So this implies that the sword of the Spirit is our only offensive weapon, one. And the sword is not a natural, doesn't have a natural source, but it is of a spiritual nature. Do you remember, as I read, that we don't wrestle, our war is not against flesh and blood. It's of a spiritual nature. So to wage a spiritual war, you would need spiritual weapons. Right? You, we can't shoot a demon with a gun. It's like what they say when you bring a knife to a gunfight. Or you bring a gun to a knife fight? We have to realize if this is a spiritual war, we cannot use natural means. I remember a few weeks ago when I was talking about spiritual warfare, how sometimes we uh, go overboard or we go underboard. That we think somehow there's spiritual things that need to be dealt with in a spiritual way, but we deem it as natural and we only use natural means. We error so much, especially in the West, in this way, because we fail to realize what Paul is saying. Yes, as I stated, a lot of things are sustained by human depravity, but it is animated by satanic forces. If we try to only deal with the human depravity, we're actually missing the whole animating force. And that's what Paul is trying to get us to understand. It's like punching the wind. You're missing the point. We have to fight spiritual things with spiritual weapons. But what's interesting that Paul talks about with this and that we understand with this is this is not an average weapon. It's funny. God only gave us one offensive weapon, but it's the most powerful weapon that one can use in the spiritual realm. Is everybody understanding? Because sometimes I think we think it's good to read and it's good for devotion, but literally what we are holding is more powerful than every, every single nuclear bomb on the face of this planet. You know why? Because a nuclear bomb can't take out demons. An assault weapon cannot destroy strongholds. How do I know that? How much wars have been waged and it has actually beaten back an ideology? None. Our country is trying to legislate out morality. 
We have an issue. We're just going to legislate it out. You cannot legislate out demons. Half of these laws, the demons are making anyway. I think if we we have to start thinking deeper about this, because then we would start approaching the issues in our family much differently. We would start approaching the issues at our jobs much differently. How much things actually happen in our lives that we actually bring up scripture and pray about and speak against it? Most times, a lot of times, we might give a pat on the back and say, hey, I'll pray for you. And half the time we don't even pray. Or if we say, hey, you know what, just just pop some pills and you'll be fine. Now, if you have medication, take your medication. But I will challenge you to also use scripture. If it is the most powerful weapon we have, we should be using it at every point in time. Look at Eve. Eve did not use the sword. She actually misquoted God. She could have simply said, God said no. Think about it, folks. Think deeper about the story. Eve could have just repeated, God said no, but she didn't. She did not wield the word of God. Yes, the the word of God did exist and was able to be wielded at that time. I'll pause here for a second. It goes back to what we talked about, about how we see Genesis. Spiritual warfare didn't start when Jesus ascended. Spiritual warfare started... How deep are we going to go tonight? Spiritual warfare started even before Genesis 3.15. If you read in Revelation, it talks about there was a war in heaven. In order for there, for there to be any kind of tempter at that time, there was a malevolent force. And Revelation tells us what happened. We have to see things deeper, folks, or else we're going to miss the point. And this is why I'm trying to take my time and hammer it home. The word of God needs to be used. Here's an example with Jesus. Jesus was the son of God. Jesus is the God man. Fully God, truly God, truly human. But even under temptation of the devil, he used scripture. He actually used exact quotes all from the Torah. Deuteronomy 8.3, Deuteronomy 6.16, Deuteronomy 10.10. He used exact quotes. So if it was good enough for Jesus and Paul tells us to use it, the question remains, in what situation are you not wielding the sword of the spirit? Folks, there is something that we're not wielding it and we're either hyper demonizing it or we're not taking it seriously enough. But I would challenge you to put the sword on it. Here's another thing. How many things has God actually left in your care to defeat on your own? 
You have his word. There's some things that God has given us the enemy. Didn't the scripture say that we will trample on the enemy? If we're in Jesus, we've already overcome. You guys know the scriptures. But on some level, maybe we're forgetting who we are. And Satan says, are you really a son of God? If you are. Only, you know, what the answer or the finish of that question is. So to sum this up in closing. I want us to think differently about the armor of God. That it's not just an interesting topic that we all heard once or twice in children's church or Sunday school or whatever people call it. But it's actually something deeper that is practical and that can be used. And the dangers of not using it can be fatal. We can shipwreck our faith. I'm going to reiterate what Paul says at the top of Ephesians 6. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm. That implies if you do not have this on, you cannot stand firm. Logical conclusion. In his mind, if you're going to be able to stand firm, you have to have the full armor. Full. All of it. Some of these armors might be difficult to put on. I have mine that when I put on, it's hard to put on. And you have yours. But we must put on the full armor of God if we are to stand firm against the enemy schemes. And lastly, I want to remind you, Everyone will have an evil day. And the evil day is not the bad day. The evil day is when, the Satan, when Satan decides to come and tempt you. That's actually the evil day. And it could be when you're riding high, and it might be when you're riding low. But I want to encourage you that if you have the armor of God on, you will stand firm. We can trust That when the assault happens, we will stand. On what else can we have assurance like this? All else is sinking sand. I've said it before. We've tried everything. We've tried the theories. We've tried. We've tried everything. Nothing else works. All we're doing is recycling things. But the word of God is sure. And it promises us. It gives us assurance That when the evil day comes, when that time comes of tempting, when the devil starts squeezing, when the flaming arrows come, if we are able to stand using the arm of God, we will stand, not only stand, but stand firm. I'm going to pray here.